Warriors podcast. I go by Max. I go by Rich. And this is our 50th episode, people. I know I'm breaking the format here, but it's not our uh, it's not our 50th episode. It's the 50th issue of Weird War Tales. So I'm breaking the format. But yes, on this podcast, we are covering the 50th issue of the Weird War, com- Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. So without any further ado about that, we're going to let Rich talk at you for a little bit before we get to the actual 50th issue of Weird War Tales. They say that timing is everything, for better or worse. Uh, Right after recording issue 49, I researched all of the Weird War Tales creators that we had seen work for and checked to see who had military service for a Facebook post on Veterans Day. I'll go down that list some other time on air. In the process, I discovered two things. Steve Skates had died on March 30th, and his last work in Weird War Tales had been in issue 49. Goes without saying, I would have said so if I had known. As we approach the first anniversary of his death, it turns out that this is a farewell nod in more ways than one. I've made notes to ensure that the next time a creator appears for the last time in these pages, it will be noted at the time. So I'm going to take this time on issue 50 to formally bid adieu to all creators that we have seen for the last time. Some have already been noted. Some are legends. Some are one and dones. But I'm not here to play favorites. So thank you, Steve Skeets. And thank you in no particular order. Bill Finger, Noli Penaligan, Mike Vosberg, Vic Geronimo, Ruben Sosa, Russell Carley, Will Franz, Buddy Grinnell, Steve Harper, Bernard Bailey, Michael Pawlowski, Paul Kirchner, Frank Thorne, Mort Meskin, Mort Drucker, Neil Adams, Tony DeZuniga, Marv Wolfman, John Albano, Alex Toth, Raymond Marias, Gene Colon, Dave Wood, Sam Glansman, Bill Woolfolk, Jerry DeFuccio, David Byrne Reed, Michael Kaluta, Don Perlin, Ed Heron, Reed Crandall, Irv Novick, Hank Chapman, Mike Esposito, Nick Cardi, Norman Maurer, Frank Robbins, and Sheldon Mayer. It was a pleasure having you all. And that means, if you've been paying attention, that we've not seen the last of such icons as Dick Ayers, Jerry Grandinetti, Steve Ditko, Russ Heath, and many others. Spoiler! Intel report. In honor of WWT50, we're going to make some more show history on the Intel report. Up until now, I've never done a single issue one-shot here because I figured I might want to save them for our future special mission. This Still holds true, but I also recognize that I'm going to start running out of material to put here at some point otherwise. And with that, Ragman number three from an eight-issue miniseries published by DC between October 1991 and May 1992. Script by Keith Giffen, rest in peace, hallowed be thy name, and Robert Loren Fleming, both of ambush bug fame, all hail, whoop whoop, Pencils also by Keith Giffen, as are Pencils and Inks by Pat Broderick. It is Warsaw, 1941. The people call for a hero to save them, and the first ragman enters the battle, an evil he cannot defeat. The mini takes place in Gotham City, so you know Bats is going to show up. 
Amusing fast sidetrack, Ragman was created by Robert Conagher and Joe Kubert in 1976 as an Irish-American, but Giffen and co. retconned the character to be Jewish. Which you think K&K would have done originally. I only started collecting this character a couple years ago. Next time I go to a con and see Broderick, a Ragman sketch might be in order. But he doesn't get many of those. Cover detail. Pencils by Ernie Chan. Inks by Vince Coletta. 30 cents. Weird War Tales is red on a purple sky. Stepping through the violet mist, a skeletal German in a greatcoat prepares to ram a spear into the back of a Thompson-carrying U.S. staff sergeant. The American is crouched and spinning towards the German so fast his helmet has flown off and he has dropped the weapon. The skeleton bellows, Turn, G.I., see how useless your weapon is against the ancient spear of death. Covered eight. January, February, 1977. Date of release, October 19th, 1976. No Killjoy. Go to the CNC because I know you like me talking so much. While I like the GI's body language and the accuracy of the gear, I'm not sold overall on this cover. It, it took me a while for me to figure it out. And I think it's the purples of the background and the mist. It dilutes the effect of a war cover. Black here probably would have been awesome. The skeleton seems stiff and unmoving as well. Gotta give this one a thumbs down. Spoiler for the story, though, if you make the GI a sergeant as compared to a staff sergeant, this scene happens in the story. Second spoiler, inside, it's called the Spear of Destiny, not the Spear of Death. Pick a tagline and stick with it. Dang it. Consistency in comic books? How dare you? <laughs> now, one thing that just dawned on me as you were reading that part of the script, and it adds a little, um, you know adds a little finish, so to speak, to my comments, is that Vince Coletta inked the cover. And I've, I've usually defended Vinny Coletta, especially on this show, um, even though he has a, a rep of being a hack inker who sometimes dashes out a job because my regular CNC started like this. I said, this is a hacked out, rushed looking cover. And for me, it's the figure in the foreground that kills it far more than anything else. Now, because I'm used to a certain quality of work from Ernie Chan, and this ain't it. So maybe Vinny um, did one of his much purported rush jobs on this. Uh, you know, that's that was like a missing ingredient for me right there. I'll say the soldier's outstretched left hand is just not quite right looking, and his eyes Looked like they were done at the last second with some whiteout. <laughs> the background colors and the mist are, for me, the best parts. This is a horror comic as well as a war comic. So we're supposed to get both kind of vibes at once here. And for me, that works. The horror mood is set, but the war side is being held up by a department store mannequin that is likely due back at the rental service by five. So overall, not great. So... That's the cover out of the way. They tried, at least. You know, could have tried harder for issue 50, but whatever. But that aside, we'll be taking a look at the story inside this issue. Yes, the story. Because this is a full-length battle tale, people. And it's entitled, An Appointment with Destiny. It's 17 pages long. Script is by first-timer Steve Englehart. Tell you why I cheer there later, but I like me some Steve Englehart. Pencils by first timer and legend Dick Ayers. Inks by definitely not 
first-timer Alfredo Alcala. And as I mentioned, it's another full-length battle tale with no breaks. So your beloved co-hosts are going to split the duty at the halfway point as usual. So I'll kick off the first half of the synopsis so we can get me out of the way for you guys, you know. Just rip the band-aid off. And that synopsis starts out like this. April 30th, 1945. With Ava Braun clinging to his side, a deranged Adolf Hitler holds a Luger to his own head as he rages to his staff. The Allies are in Berlin! The shells even shake this bunker! The end has come for the Reich and me! But fear not! My loyal and faithful friends, another will scale the heights we fail to reach. Wait for him after I am gone. Wait for an appointment with destiny. You said the title, take a drink. Hitler leads his newlywed wife into another room to do what must be done out of the gaze of others. Two shots are soon heard and the German troops scramble to burn the bodies before the Allies arrive. But an explosion blows the door off its hinges and sends the Nazis flying. Sergeant Walker and Staff Sergeant Baxter storm in, Thompson's blazing, and clear the room. They'd been ordered to snatch Uncle Adolf before the Ruskies rolled into town. And the way things were going, it was starting to look like they might pull this insane mission off. They grill the lone survivor about where Hitler is hiding. The Fuhrer is where you can never find him, dog. Now we shall all await the coming man. The two GIs decide to look around anyway and are dismayed to discover the two corpses in the next room. Now what were they going to do? Walker sees movement in a corner of the room and opens fire as a German soldier draped in a long, furry coat dives into a hole concealed by a curtain. Yelling at Baxter to keep the prisoner covered, Walker pursues. The tunnel is dark and twisty, not giving Walker a clear shot. Like a ghoul escaping the grave, the man scrambles up a ladder and crawls into the desolation of Berlin. Walker is only seconds behind but the man has vanished. The first World War helmet had hid his face. Never mind where had he gone. Who had he been? Walker had seen Hitler dead, but the Razzis have pulled plenty of fast ones in their time. A spear suddenly streaks through the smoke and embeds itself in Walker's chest. Talk about a fast one, eh? As the American falls to his knees, clutching the spear's shaft, the otherworldly German also steps from the smoke. Don't feel badly, Sergeant. You could not escape your fate. On this day, the spear of destiny has brought death to Adolf Hitler, the greatest man our race has ever known. You could scarcely have been spared. Death comes to all who encounter the spear. Death and power. Pulling the spear from Walker's body, a pink glow surrounds him as he levitates away. Which will I say the first, eh? I, the coming man. Baxter finds Walker, who lives just long enough to tell Baxter the story. The spear had given Walker the power to live until he had told Baxter the story. 
Baxter takes off in pursuit of the so-called coming man and soon finds footprints where he must have come down. On a deserted road, Baxter runs into a patrol of Soviets. It's hard to know who was more surprised. You are an American, the squad leader exclaims. What does this mean? Have the Americans beaten us to Berlin? Fall in with us, American. We are allies after all, but I must learn the truth. Good thing this guy speaks English, huh? <laughs> but Baxter can't be delayed and takes off running, still following the Germans' trail. The Soviet squad leader orders his men to open fire. Some allies, huh? They do so, and they do so reluctantly. Just as Baxter reaches the tree line, a Soviet slug tears through his left leg. Baxter tumbles down a steep embankment and lies motionless at the bottom. The Soviets leave him, believing him to be dead. Baxter then patches himself up as best he can with his first aid pouch, finds a stick hefty enough to serve as a cane, and continues to hobble along after the coming man's footprints, which lead to an eerie hilltop castle as a full moon rises behind it. Earth 2 podcast, take a drink. <laughs> He's in rough shape, but can't stay out in the cold. He knocks on the door and is greeted by a Chinese servant named Fong. Again, both are surprised to see the other, and Baron Cragen is quick to intercede and shake the American's hand. We are aware of the Allies' final victory, I assure you. We Germans are as happy to see the madness end as you are. Cragen seems legit, but Baxter doesn't dare trust him for a second. Cragen's daughter, Ilsa, treats Baxter's wounds. She, too, seems friendly, but Baxter doesn't trust her either. Later, the three of them chat around a dinner table as Fong serves them. Baxter doesn't eat, staring at the prosthesis on Cragen's left hand. Walker had mumbled something about his killer having a strange contraption on his left arm. Baron Cragen notices, or notices uh, Walker's attention and smiles. A lady friend bagged a tiger alive on a safari to Ethiopia. I begged her for it, though the experts told me no man could tame a wild tiger. The experts were right, as it happens. It taught me a lesson that a man cannot win every battle without help. Maybe you know another story, Baron, Baxter says. About the Spear of Destiny. The Spear? Why, yes. The story begins with Christ's crucifixion. It belonged to a Roman soldier who stood by the cross to mock our dying savior. But the Christ would not respond to him, so he jabbed him with his blade. Suddenly the sky grew dark. Thunder rumbled and a strong wind blew, snatching the spear from his hand. He became a believer in that instant. From that day forward, power lived in that evil spear, and any warlord who held it knew greatness. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and many others through the centuries. In 1924, the spear came to rest in an Austrian museum, where a young Adolf Hitler vowed to own it. Cragen shrugs. Of course, it is merely a legend. I merely repeat what I have been told. And who told it to you? I find your tone insulting. Perhaps I was wrong about you. Perhaps you are simply a brash American fool, and not, as I suspected a scout for an entire American force. Without warning, Baxter feels dizzy. 
You may not have touched your food, fool, but you touched your fork, and the tiny needle in its handle marks it as a family heirloom. Baxter collapses unconscious. Careful planning, Sergeant, and proper tools. With these and the spear, a man can conquer the world. Hours later, Baxter wakes up in a prison cell. Ilsa and Fong are watching him. Our first attempt at world domination failed, and it took 21 years to begin the second, she exclaimed. In these final months, it became obvious that it too would founder. So the Führer and my father came to terms. Our third attempt, our lucky third, will not take 21 years to launch, I assure you. Ilse, in her gloating, gets too close to Baxter's cell, who lunges his arm through the bars and grabs her by the throat. The key, Fu Manchu! Open this cell, or she dies! Fong doesn't want to obey, but Ilse commands him to. Even freed, he is no threat to father's plans. Father will understand, but if I die, he will not. Fong releases Baxter who locks both of them in his vacated prison before running off to find the Baron. Standing in a castle turret under the full moon, Cragen crows, the spear of destiny in my right hand, a death ray in place of my left. Who could stand against them? Tonight, the Reich falls, but Germany survives, and we have never been defeated for long. All we need is a new Führer, and Baron Cragen is prepared. The Aryan dream will rise again. A sword jabs Cragen in the back. Because it's full of hot air, Baron, Baxter snarls. Cragen is surprised to see the American and swings the spear towards him, but Baxter parries with his sword. I hope you don't plan on fighting this sword with your magic spear, because I'll be more than happy to whittle it into matchsticks. Nothing so crude, Sergeant. I can destroy you myself. I am more than human. This device attached to my wrist makes me part mortal, part machine. They call me a bionic man now. I am the coming man. Baxter barely knocks Cragen's death ray aside with his sword as he fires. A second blocked near miss shreds Baxter's bandage. The American grabs a frayed edge of bandage and whips it towards Cragen's death ray, snagging the arm it was attached to. Moving quickly, he wraps more of the bandage around Cragen's body and rips the spear out of the German's hand. The Baron struggles and fires the ray again into the ground. Baxter doesn't hesitate. Raising the spear, he plunges it into Cragen's chest. Gott in Himmel! Cragen exclaims as he sinks to his knees. I am murdered, but I am the coming man. I had the spear. I had power. Maybe so, but me and my country have gone through four long years of hell because of your kind. You were fighting the next war and I had to finish this one. You want to get mystical about it? I tell you, on this night, with peace finally at hand, there was no way you could win. The Allies have won, Cragen. It's over. A scream makes Baxter spin. Ilse is charging towards him, knife in her hand. I'll cut your hot out pig, she cries. Baxter instantly levels the spear, and Ilse impales herself on it. The American is horrified, and tears well in his eyes. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe it'll never be over, as long as people like that walk this earth. Could it be this piece we fought so hard for won't last forever? A burst of automatic fire cuts Baxter down from behind. Oh, God, he whispers as he dies. Fong, holding a smoking rifle, walks onto the turret and picks up the spear. 
For years I have served the Baron and listened to him rave about this spear. Now at last it belongs to me. Now we Chinese have the power. Three years later, war tore through China as the communist legions erupted in fury against their masters, protected by the spear. Their coming could not be halted. Next, the terror spread to Korea, and then to Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. Now, some say the Spear of Destiny has fallen into Arabic hands, and others say African. Who is the next coming man? To joy! Page 2, panel 5, where the two Americans barge into the bunker. You know, at, at first of all, the U.S. never fought in Berlin. We gave the city to the Russians before realizing it was just a two-man strike team sneaking into the bunker to kidnap Hitler. Oh, okay, never mind. Before realizing again the lunacy of sending a two-man strike team sneaking into the most heavily defended location in Berlin to kidnap Hitler. Even if you got him, how the hell would you escape with him? Despite the fact that Hitler killed himself in late April, everyone in the story is wearing coats and running through snow. And the war didn't end when Hitler killed himself, despite everyone acting like it did. VE Day, the formal German surrender, was May 8th, or May 9th if you were Soviet. Last page, panel two, where the spear goes, Maxler gets mowed down if he'd been holding it. The Chinese Civil War raged intermittently from 1927 to 1949 with a very uneasy ceasefire during the war against Japan between 1937 and 1945. So Rod's voiceover isn't quite accurate. And besides, well, in the Marvel Universe, we all know that Hitler was killed by the original Human Torch. I'm not, you know, that's a, that's a different comic book universe, sure. But hey. At least they went with a two normal human man strike team here and not an android that burst into flame on contact with oxygen. But all right, as you may have guessed, I, I have a little something to say here, too, and not just my usual C&C. Brace yourself, people. I told you this is a special episode. This is issue 50. So as opposed to just a C&C, I have Max's long ass or long ginus, as you'll see here. History, joy, kill, minute, thing. So the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Holy Lance or the Lance of Longinus, that's L-O-N-G-I-N-U-S, is mentioned in the Gospel of John. The Gospel states that the Romans planned to break Jesus's legs, a practice known as, and I'm going to mangle this Latin phrase here, crurifragium. Which, is, which was a method of hastening death during a crucifixion. Apparently they were getting tired of waiting for, you know, Jesus to kick the can. Because it was the eve of the Sabbath, the followers of Jesus needed to entomb him because of Sabbath laws. Just before they did so, they noticed that Jesus was already dead and there was no reason to break his legs. You know, there's a little quote in there, and no bone will be broken that lends itself to that detail. To make sure that Jesus was dead, a Roman soldier named an extra-biblical tradition, not in the Bible, as Longinus, stabbed him in the side with a spear. So the soldier was not there to mock Jesus, as Jesus did not respond because he was, well, dead. So that, that part of the story in the comic book was just added for flavor, or they picked it up from some other apocryphal story about this supposed event. 
the name of the soldier who pierced uh, Christ's side with a lance or lance is not given in the Gospel of John, as I said. But the oldest known reference to the legend is in the apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus. At least four major relics are claimed to be the Holy Lance out here in the real world or parts of it. Look them up. And see if you can get Nicolas Cage to help you steal him when he's done with the Declaration of Independence or whatever, okay? So, some more bullet points here about the Spear of Destiny and pop culture and DC Comics in particular. And uh, I'll kick it off with a favorite of, of, of everyone, but especially of the hosts of this show. Indiana Jones searches for the Holy Lance in the 1995 comic book series, Indiana Jones and the Spear of Destiny, taking place in 1945. And as people may remember, the 2023 film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, opens with Jones attempting to recover the Holy Lance from Nazi Germany in 1944. But in that case, Jones discovers that that lance in particular was a fake. Another point that's outside of comics here, the Spear of Longinus appears in Wolfenstein 3D. Yes, the classic computer and video game as a plot device in the first expansion pack for the game titled, guess what? Spear of Destiny. So diving into DC Comics and the Spear of Destiny, there's some revelations in store for some of you out there, but also me as I did the research for this and my own altered memory. So first bullet point, this issue of Weird War Tales is the first use of the Spear of Destiny in all of DC Comics' actual published history. Before this, and the issue I'll mention in a moment, DC kept, for example, Superman out of the war using other methods depending on the medium. So like I said, my own memories of the the using the spear to keep Superman and stuff out of the war comes in a bit later on this little special killjoy of mine here. So Next bullet point, like Uncle Sam and Rosie the Riveter, Superman was an important symbol of American patriotism during World War II. The action comics and Superman books were spared from government paper rationing. So although comic book stories mostly avoided the war, Superman battled the enemy on covers of the comics, on the radio, in cartoons, and the newspapers. He was in there in other mediums. Superman was fighting the war, on the radio and animated cartoons and in the newspaper strips. In the comics, he only did so on the covers of the books. In the newspaper strip storyline from February 16th to 19th, 1942, Clark Kent attempted to enlist in the army but fails the eye exam because of his x-ray vision. Not sure how that plays out, but I'm going to look that strip up at some point. A disgusted Lois Lane remarks, I might have known the army would turn you down. Clark decides that the U.S. armed forces are capable of achieving victory without Superman. Yeah, good on you, Clark. Ah, they got this. They don't need my awesome superpowers. I'll just be over here. And in the August 20, 1943 strip, General Douglas MacArthur informs Superman that the United Nations does not need him. Again, eh, we don't need you. As a reporter, Clark worked with the Army Air Force Technical Training Command in Superman No. 25, November-December 1943, and the U.S. Navy in Superman 34, May of June 1945. Now, comic book readers were constantly reminded to purchase war bonds and war stamps. Later, marketing focused on the war loans. 
World's Finest Comics number eight, winter 1942, portrays Superman, Robin, and Batman encouraging children to sink the Japan Nazis with bonds and stamps. Cover to Action Comics 58 in March of 43 depicts Superman printing propaganda posters that read, Superman says you can slap a Jap with war bonds and stamps. Yeah, people, war propaganda. Here we go. Moving on. However, one day, a writer named Paul Levitz came along and introduced the spear into the origin of the Justice Society of America. And thus, DC Special number 29 was born, cover dated September 1977. This issue has Hitler using the spear to summon Valkyries, one of which attempts to assassinate FDR. FDR's life is spared by the Atom and Superman. In a post-crisis, yes, crisis on infinite Earths, people, we're getting deep into the DC weeds here. In a post-crisis revamp, Superman wasn't there, so FDR dies in that attack, but the Spectre asks the voice, as in we all know it's supposed to be God, to resurrect him, and FDR is brought back to life by literal God. (laughs) Not to be outdone by this, Roy Thomas, a writer you may have heard of, then picked up the torch, or the spear, and decided to write it into the plot of All-Star Squadron number 4, December 1981. And here's where my memories come in. In that plot, he says, Hitler used the spear along with the Holy Grail, which was held by the other supervillain, the Dragon King in Japan, to perform a ritual that would make all superpowered individuals who entered the theaters of war fall under access control. And that is the retcon that entered my brain at 10 years old and survived for four decades. Written 40 years after the American start of the war and only put into proper context by me 40 years after that. So I am old. (laughs) In actual published DCU comics, retcons be damned, the JSA originally or officially disbanded in All-Star Comics number 11, June of 1942 so that the individual members of the team could enlist in the army. The group does so, has individual adventures in which they mostly end up returning to their costumed IDs by the end, and then they are reformed as the Justice Battalion, a home front security force, and a new name for the team that lasts for about a year in real life. The JSA then remains on the home front, except for when they don't, And no one seems to worry about it too much, because remember, it was the 40s, and these were comic books. People weren't taking them that seriously until these fans grew up, like Paul Levitz and Roy Thomas, and decided everything had to make sense. All right? So All-Star Squadron number four comes along, and Roy Thomas has to put everything in order. At least pretty much all of poor Roy Thomas's work was dashed to a million pieces by the time The Crisis on Infinite Earths was finished in 1986. So he tried to make sense of everything. And then everyone, the powers that be at DC went, nice work, Roy. I hope nothing happens to it. <laughs> so, so that's it. That's the history of the Spear of Destiny in DC Comics, a little bit in pop culture, and also why I had thought in the back of my mind previous to this episode, that it was true in the comics that the Spear of Destiny was a plot point in the 40s, and it just wasn't. It wasn't a plot point until 1981 as far as keeping the superheroes out of Europe. And I was 10, so, you know, 
pretty impressionable, I guess. So, um, yeah, just wasn't a case until 40 years later. So now for my actual CNC on this issue. Huh? How about that? So we got Steve Englehart on writing duties is an all-time favorite of mine, as I alluded to previously, mostly due to his work on Marvel's Defenders and Avengers titles. His name always raises my hopes when I see it in the credits box. And the sheer craft on display throughout the opening page does a lot to keep it raised up here in the art department as well. The individual drawings are all great, as they really are throughout this entire issue. But I particularly dig the symmetry of starting the page with a caption that leads into a piece of dialogue two minutes before dot 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 the end and ending the page with a piece of dialogue that leads to a caption wait for dot 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 an appointment with destiny so the dialogue leading into lettering the title of the story plus we start out this story with hitler holding a gun to his own head all right. On page two, the sheer momentum of the action keeps rolling as the Allied soldiers burst in. Page two, how you doing? I'll defer to Rich on page two, panel two, as to whether the said $2 a month pay statement or was it 21? 21. Oh, okay. In my copy, it looked like two. So I was like, what? Uh, but as to whether well, was, that there was like that, that, that slash or something, yeah, you know, it's probably kind of blended in. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so was it was that accurate when they said about how much they were getting paid or do you know? Um, It's pretty accurate. I mean, you got to think, A, it's it's, you know, you know, 1945. You mean like that would probably be more of like a buck privates pay or something like that. But you also got to remember, you know, even today, you know, the army is giving you your clothing. The army is giving you your food. The army is giving you all the crap that you would be paying for yourself in this day and age. So there's the party that's like, man, you're not getting paid crap. But then, but then there's the other party that's like, yeah, but the military is giving you all of this that you don't have to pay for. <laughs> so it kind of, like, you know, generally balances out. Okay, well, that uh, commercial for the army being over. <laughs> but it, it, moving on in the comic. In panel three, we get the coming man to quote Archer. Are we not doing phrasing anymore? And if that's whom we're waiting for, why not make that the title of the story at the end of page one? Wait for the coming man. Yeah, we know why. I'll get back to that because of course I will. I liked the circular spotlight panel around the soldier's eyes on page five. And in panel three, of that same page, we get a mention of the Brotherhood of Evil, like from the Doom Patrol. Who says these stories don't take place in the DCU? More on that later as well. On page six, panel two, there is some cool work in the form of the coming man's silhouette. And I also really dig Baxter's close-up on page seven, panel four. In page eight, panels three through six are well used, showing Baxter's fall after being shot by his Russian allies and of course panel one of page nine with the establishing shot of the castle is pretty great too page 10 gives us the arrival of ilsa which immediately made me think of the old reliable farmer's daughter gag jokes as it made baxter think of the same thing in panel two with his thought balloon reading and how friendly are you honey panels two through four and page 12 are a great example of how to keep talking heads visually interesting. And on page 13, panel four, 
I really liked the effect of Ilsa breaking the border of the panel as she stood outside Baxter's cell, creating some depth there. When Baxter grabs her arm, though, her pearl necklace falls apart. Is Bruce Wayne just off panel waiting to cry about it? I think it's in his contract. <laughs> On to page 14. Wouldn't Baron Cregan be a better title than The Coming Man? Or do we just lean into it at this point and add Jack Kirby's tagline from the OMAC series? The Coming Man! From the world that's coming! Coming right at ya! In the face! <laughs> Page 15, panel 2. Cregan has has uh, Henry Rollins yelling, Heart! Animal! Machine! In my head. <laughs> and now, The Coming Man is bionic. The bionic coming man. All right, we have we have devices that can help you with that. They left that part out of the show, though, I guess. Page 16, panel six has Ilsa coming in like a Valkyrie for a second, at least just an unhinged drawing. I really liked it. And the final page with a patiently triumphant fong has me wondering, is it the coming man or the commie man? Hmm. <laughs> I enjoyed the heck out of this issue, as I'm sure you guys probably picked up on. And I especially liked that the Spears blessing was also understood to have a price. Bright candle burns out fast. Great stuff. And as a sidebar, um, you, you were talking about all the, uh, the wartime issues that Superman appeared in. There's a hardcover book out there called Superman the Warriors, 1938 to 1945 by Roy Thomas that collects all of this stuff, all the one shots, the covers, the the ads, you know, everything having to do with dealing with fifth columnists right up through, you know, to the end of the war. And they actually made ones for Batman and Wonder Woman also. And I got all three of them, you know, so I probably have everything that you were talking about in that book. And yeah, spoiler, we are going to have to do something with like a wartime Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman at some point on this show because those stories are just over the moon nuts. <laughs> Obviously, we're, it, it's going to have to happen at at, at at some point. It just is. So. And even if I um even if I don't have the issues or those collections on hand, I'm pretty sure a lot of those, if not all, the Golden Age stories are on the DC app that I'm a member of. So we got that covered. I'm pretty sure. Okay, so welcome to the show, Dick Ayers. As has been mentioned before, I met Dick at a at a New York Comic Con once and got him to sign a half dozen DC war books. No weird war, though. If only I knew, I certainly would have. Uh, <laughs> page one, panel three. The insanity of the screaming Hillary as he's about to blow his head off as Ava clings to him is amazing. The only thing missing from that panel are flecks of flying spittle as he rages miscolored swastika armbands notwithstanding in the panel above it page three panel one are the germans throwing their helmets and weapons at the gis ah the comics code authority when dropped helmets and guns are the only way to show people were getting killed in war books craigan sports a monocle because he's the bad guy and of course he does this story reminds me a bit of light brigade go look at the intel report which i would also love to do a special mission for if it gets voted on the two-thirds of a page spear origin and page 11 was well done. And I was all on board with the story until it was revealed Cragen had a death ray in lieu of a hand. I'm sorry, when did this become a Marvel book? Is he a Baron von Strucker knockoff? Where's Sergeant Fury? Damn you, Engelhardt. The sword versus laser ray fight was pure Marvel madness. 
Biotic Man? Okay. I get that the $6 billion man was a hit show when the story was written, but come on. And are Baxter's bandages, bandages or a whip? Welcome to the show, Indiana Jones. He'll want that spear, by the way. That's Captain America's shield physics right there. Page 15, panels three and four. The wheels completely fell off the last couple of pages, but despite that, the ending leaves you with a bit of a question mark, even close to 50 years after it was written. Who is the next coming man? Look at all the hot spots around the world. You could certainly still make the case for China. What about the next 50 years? Tune in, folks. So, that's the story. And now, we shall leap right into APO Weird War Tales. And I'm going to do the missive we got from Kevin Marletta from New York, New York. And he says, Dear Joe, although the cover of Weird War Tales number 48 was a bit off balance with all the action seemingly headed to the lower right-hand corner, I still enjoyed the contents. Ultimate Destiny was a nice change of pace in the art department. It looked almost as if Walt Simonson of Metalman fame had something to do with it. Was he the inker? The Greeks had a word for it was a nice story, but the Medusa Gorgon bit has been done so many times in comics in the past. Artist Bill Drought did an original conception of, of the Medusa, and I always like the way Bill draws people. They look like people, but they also retain the comic book quality that is so refreshing. The day after Doomsday installment this time was a shocker. We didn't show us the ending, but we readers were left no doubt with what the, orig- what the horrible outcome would be very fine. So, all in all, I'll give the cover a C plus on the last hill at A. This averages Weird War Tales number 50 with a final grade of B. Not bad at all. Pretty sure he meant to say 48 because this is Weird War Tales 50, but hey, you know. <laughs> and, and Joe responds with, it's good to know we made the grade, Kevin. And it was Ruben Sosa, not Walt Simonson, who did the art on our lead feature, The Ultimate Destiny. Yeah, I, I liked I liked issue 48 all, though. I didn't really have very many, questions, very many things to bitch about on that one. My letter, it starts out, Dear Joe, I've always enjoyed stories about the Earth after the Atomic War. I was a big fan of the Atomic Knights, and more recently, Commandy and Hercules. Now, through a good friend with similar interests, I've discovered the Day After Doomsday feature that often runs in Weird War Tales. I enjoyed the one by Steve Skeets and Buddy Grinnell in your September-October issue concerning the carnivorous monkeys. Yes, we like that one too. However, this brings up a question. Are the Doomsday stories in this feature in any way connected to the future worlds of Commandy, Hercules, and the Atomic Knights? If so... Why weren't the monkeys intelligent in that story? And this letter comes from Roy Thomas, I mean, Bob Newberg of Enfield, Connecticut. All right. Joe's response is, probably with a sigh here, to answer in a word, no. The futures in the Day After Doomsday feature do not connect with Commandy or any other of our possible futures. But, and this is a very important but, It is possible in upcoming issues that such stories will connect with certain other features since new story editor Jack C. Harris feels Commandy deserves all the space in his own magazine. The feature Tales of the Great Disaster was shelved, even though some other stories in that series had been written and drawn. 
editorial coordinator Paul Levitz thought that these stories were good enough to appear in another place in another place. So they might very well turn up here as the day after doomsday featurettes. If they do, then they would indeed connect up with the Commandy legend. If you're interested in finding out how the three features you mentioned do link up, send for a copy of our fanzine, The Amazing World of DC Comics number 12, our science fiction special that features a chapter of The Guide to Confusing Continuity on the various Earth After Disaster legends. Don't miss it if you want to be in the know. What I liked about that letter was that not only did it tie into like, you know, my Roy Thomas joke there, fans and fans turned writers eventually wanting to make sense of literally everything published by one company, but how the editorial response pivoted from a barely believable attempt at kind of mindless or patronizing that attitude of that interest in continuity into like a total sales pitch for another comic, you know, another magazine, like just you know, buy this mag, go over to Commandy, that stuff might be showing up here, just pivoted seamlessly into the sales pitch job. That's how it's done, people, right there. You got them, use the hook, and then get some more of that cash out of them. And speaking of getting cash out of people, we are going to uh, leave the letters page behind and go to our spotlighted ads for Actually, this one. Oh, okay. Before we do that, I want to. I know, we'll, we'll just we'll just start over from there. So um, okay. you can just chime in, and I'll start over with the ads. So so going back to what you were saying about uh, about Commandi uh, and everything else like that. Yeah, they didn't wait very long. The very next issue, issue fifty one, Tales of the Great Disaster, a Canterbury a Canterbury tale. We we lunge right into it. These were originally intended to be backup stories from number 47 and 48. So tune in, folks. We'll see you next week. <laughs> so no time wasted at all by the powers that be at DC. So yeah, right there. So he wasn't being as disingenuous as I, I, I first assumed. He was talking business the whole time. So right on. <laughs> and speaking of talking business, we're going to move on from the letters page to our personal spotlighted ads for the issue. And I'll kick it off with the free Daily Planet insert, which is a one-page ad in this book disguised as a page from the Daily Planet, the newspaper that Clark Kent works at, even though in the 70s, I think he was working at the television station. But whatever. No one remembers that part. <laughs> All right, so... I'm going to skim over this ad, but basically it's like a news page for DC Comics, right? And we have features for Zatanna and Abracadabra starring in a magic special. And let me see here. Yeah, so we have we have that up top covering the magic part of things. But more in particular, what makes it interesting to this podcast is we have the article right under the Zatanna and Abracadabra special. Abracadabra being a Flash enemy, by the way, guys, in case you've completely forgotten about him. We have underneath that an ad that says Blitzkrieg Brain is back. Europe, World War II, the Blitzkrieg Brain, the Nazi soldier who has been transformed into a mechanical war machine is back. And once again, his path crosses that of the haunted tank. Jeb Stewart 
and his crew learn that the devil rides a panzer in this Bob Conniger, Sam Glansman battle blockbuster, which is featured in GI Combat number 198, and also in this issue, which goes on sale the week of October 25th, an OSS operative finds himself on a mission aboard the ship that would not die by Bart Regan and ER Cruz. Now, with the Blitzkrieg brain, I just wanted to tie that into Rich's comments about, what is this, a Marvel War comic? <laughs> this guy is a cyborg, a Nazi cyborg going literal hand to tread with the haunted tank in the little caption piece of art above the article. You, you he just... looks like Destro, man. He looks like Destro. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Do you, do you, have you read any issues with Blitzkrieg brain in them? Dude, I own them all again, but I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about the Marvel age of war comics coming to DC. I'm like, even I'm reading that going, what? <laughs> it's just, I, I couldn't let that ad pass without without reading about that. But also keeping it into uh, in, in theme with this podcast and some others, um, we have an you know, mention of the Freedom Fighters in Rutland, Vermont for the Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont. A current podcast crossover series is happening, covering that right now. <laughs> we have um, the Unexpected, right, uh, is solicited here. It's a trio of unexpected adventures. Reward for the wicked. Death is, a, is dangerous to your health. And death is the surprise. So, you know, a death themed issue of unexpected how strange and we also have young love number 123 solicited here more heartthrobs for the young and in love including love is the answer the lost love and 20 miles to heartbreak so tying in with our propensity for uh, our penchant for covering romance comics on this show on valentine's day it was nice to see that represented still alive still kicking we still got a romance comic going in the 70s here and uh aside from that i want to pose the trivia contest questions that are on this page to you listeners out there all right there's a trivia quiz in the middle of the page and it reads as follows believe it or not there are quite a few reporters in our various magazines. Can you name the employers of, number one, Clark Kent, number two, Iris Allen, number three, Billy Batson, number four, Jack Ryder, and number five, Dick Grayson. Now remember, these are all characters that were working as reporters, and I gave you the answer to number one, you know, even kind of. In, in the very top of this feature. But remember, there's a twist to that. So all five of those were working as reporters at the time. Who were they working for is the question. And they say the answer will be in next week's planet. Answers to last week's quiz, whatever the questions to that were, were the doctors we were looking for are Dr. Fate, Dr. Midnight, Dr. Light, Dr. Polaris, and Dr. Destiny. And just missing the cut was Dr. Kill Patient. All right. So there we go. I got to say, there's an ad for the Star Trek Lives movement or product or whatever going on. That ad was a close second for me. Very, very close. But this Daily Planet insert just had to be my pick. It had too much to do with our sphere of the DC universe. So there you go. Once again, I have to cheat and select two, but they're both on the same page. So work with me. First, by land in Florida. One dollar. 
For just $1, you can own one square inch of high and dry land in sunny Florida with your own deed and legal description. Send $1 with self-addressed stamped envelope to Happy Days Land Co., P.O. Box 8204, Tampa, Florida, 33674. Please print name as you want it to appear on deed. Allow four to six weeks for delivery. Makes a great Christmas present, too. And we're recording this less than a week before Christmas 2023. So there you go, folks. P.S. Go to our Redbubble store. Anyway, okay, I, I, I tried to find out more about this. And the only thing I found was a 2015 nod in Blog Into Mystery. And I'm going to read it here. We're all familiar with the old saying, if you believe that, I have some swamp land in Florida I'd like to sell you. It signifies a con, a mugs game, a deal only a sucker would go for, and stands right alongside deeds to the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, the Happy Days, D-A-Z-E, Land Co., how can you not trust a company so named, managed to monetize that saying by making a novelty out of it. Though they claimed the land they offered was high and dry, color me skeptical. So, what's more useless, naming a distant asteroid after someone or one square inch, one, of land? Were these deeds actually registered? Can you go to a local county clerk and find reams of deeds for one inch parcels? Can you go down to Florida and erect a green monopoly house on your tract or a hotel? <laughs> I love that. I love following that blog. I can't, I can't deny it. Like I said, I'd love to know more about these, but I know I won't actually do anything about it after I read these words on recording. So, add two. Fuzz Roulette. Again, I've never heard of it, and I could find even less on this than I could about buying postage stamp-sized land parcels in Florida. Have fun with your friends. Play the new police board game, Fuzz Roulette. In full color for only $4.95. Anyone can play. Ages 7 to adult. Board program game with promotions in rank, hazards, promotion points, and point awards. Six men, dice, rank cards, scorecard for points, instructions. It's fun. To order, fill in above and send check or money order for $4.95 plus $1 for postage and mail to Fuzz Roulette. P.O. Box 4148, Long Island City, New York, 11106. I mean, this ad was so tiny, I had to take a picture of it and blow it up to read this crap, okay? Looking at the drawing of the game board, and it's no wonder I've never seen this before. Parker Brothers probably sued them for every penny their grandkids ever made. This is such an obvious ripoff of Monopoly. There even appears to be a jail corner square and another corner square that sends you directly there. And it, what's this 1970s like calling the police the fuzz? Where did that word come from? The origin of fuzz is uncertain. Side history minute. The expression arose in America in the late 1920s and early 1930s, probably in the criminal underworld. Evan Morris, the word detective, says, where in the world are you hearing people refer to the police as fuzz? I've never heard a real person use it. Unless you want to count Jack Webb on the old dragnet. When I was growing up in the 1960s, we called police officers many things, but mostly we called them cops. and we never ever call them the fuzz. As a matter of fact, calling the cops the fuzz would have been instantly suspected of being a cop. It would have been a faux pas right up there with ironing your blue jeans. <laughs> there are several theories about the origin of fuzz. American Tramp and Underworld Slang, published in 1931, suggests that fuzz was derived from fuss, meaning the cops were fussy over trifles. 
a mispronunciation or mishearing of the words feds, federal agents. This seems unlikely. Entomologist Eric Partridge wonders if fuzz might have come from the beards of early police officers. This also seems improbable. The term is not related to Fuzzy Wuzzy, who was a bear. You didn't ask, but the term bear for police refers to the smoking the bear had commonly worn by state troopers. And Moore suggests the word arose from a ter- as a term of contempt for police based on the use of fuzz or fuzzy and other terms of derogatory criminal slang of the period. To be fuzzy was to be unmanly, incompetent, and soft. How better to insult the police, after all, than to mock them as ineffectual. That explanation seems as good as any and better than most. So I've been talking, so I'll keep on talking and go into these certain things called last words that we have every once in a while. Happy leap year, everyone! You all know that if we'd initially tried to drop issue issue 50 on February 29th back in the day, we'd have failed miserably. It's better to be lucky sometimes than good. All the special missions, summertime slowdowns, etc., lined us up naturally on the 28th. And there was just no way we would tweak the schedule for a little bit of fun. Now, for the book itself, because I'm committed, perhaps because I should be, I worked on the script while in Ohio over the Thanksgiving holiday. West Coast, East Coast, I can't be stopped, people. I love this show. The bad thing about full-length battle tales is that quite often the story C and C and the last words are identical. Only so much damage ads in the letter page can do after all, but fine. Despite the fact I think the title changed publishers at the three-quarter mark, I still give this book a thumbs up. At some point, yeah, just gotta embrace the lunacy. Dick Ayers certainly lived up to expectations especially when teamed up with Alcala, tossing quirky ads on a respectable letters page, and fine, it was weird at the very least. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the sudden addition of the Death Ray was admittedly dumb and completely ineffective, but that rolled right off my back. Like Baxter's sword in Cragen's back on page 14. You had him, dude. What the heck? <laughs> in the face of everything else I liked about this issue, fun, fast-paced writing, great art, cool page and panel layouts, great ads. I mean, what else do you need? Oh, yeah, a host. This issue had no skeletal host at all. And I barely noticed. So you know I was having a good time. So... That's it, people. That's the issue. That's the ads. That's the last words. We're going to do a little scuttlebutt here and wrap up and odds and ends of business before ending this 50, uh, this, this spotlight on the 50th issue, this very special episode. So, Rich, hit him with the scuttlebutt. We've got another five-star review. And actually, based on the date it was posted, it may have been our first five-star review. The problem with so many podcast services out there is that it's all too easy for these to be missed. On December 6, 2021, about the time of episode 16, Stormdog138 posted on Podcast Addict. I love this show. I love this comic as a kid. I just picked up the DC Showcase Presents, which has the first 22 issues in one omnibus. I took a chance and searched and found your show. I find it insightful and a great discussion on weird war tales. Please stay with it. Can't wait until you get to the Creature Commandos. I know that will be a while. 
awesome show. It's like I'm having a discussion with you. So like I said, for the record, I did not find this post until literally two years later. So I apologize for the late nod, Stormdog138. Thanks for the kind word. And I hope you're still listening. <laughs> uh, talk about twisting the knife in me with a please stay with the show. Please don't quit. Blah, blah, blah. All right, people. So you may have noticed I, I'm changing up the end of the episode a little bit here. Um, uh, there's, there's normally a part called the dead letter office. That's more or less gone as of this episode. Uh, like I said, we're going to call this the scuttlebutt where we do some, some wrapping up at the end here. And as far as like, what are we going to do about social media? Eh, uh, you guys know who you are. You know, you're liking the stuff. That's fine. And uh, we appreciate it and all that. As for what about the Gmail? Well, I'm so bad at responding to the stuff and keeping track of it that I figure we have a Facebook page run by our very friendly and dedicated person named Rich, who is not me. <laughs> and so also, when you send messages to the Facebook page, uh, even I get a notification on my phone right away. So send messages to our Facebook page. Um, it'll it'll be a lot more efficient than writing to the Gmail. And uh, you can just talk back and forth right there. And it'll save time at the end of the show, me remembering to bring up and read all the Gmails. And um, for now, at least, we'll remind you, as Rich did earlier in the scuttlebutt part of the show here, that we have a little store on redbubble.com. If you like the show enough to uh, want its awesome logo that was drawn and designed by Bill Walco of the Hero Business, you can get that kick-ass logo plastered onto any piece of merchandise you can find at redbubble.com. Just search for the Weird Warriors podcast over there and you'll see the possibilities unfold. And not only that, you'll get something from Rich, won't you, Rich? Indeed. A little bit of a Sam star. Remnant of an old tattered U.S. flag that Sam Glansman himself ran up the flagpole outside of his home. So you buy some stuff, you prove to us that you bought it with a photo of it, and I will send you a Sam star and a cute little certificate saying that it's a Sam star. <laughs> you get that? You're going to get a piece of something that belonged to a comic book legend that flew over that person's house. And someone connected to this show and to so many other great comics and, and achievements out there. Like defending this country that this person did. You know, so you'll you'll get something like that just for buying a piece of our uh, of our stuff and sending us a picture of it again to the Facebook page. You can send a, a message to that with a picture and you'll get something really cool from Rich. OK, so that's it, folks. That's issue 50 of the Weird War Tales comic book series covered by us on this show. That's it. We're, we're wrapping that up. But first, before we go. It's not quite the end. Rich is going to give you even a little something more. A teaser for our next episode. Weird War Tales 51. Copied cover. Autographed issue. Four hellos and a goodbye. And history repeats. You know what to do. Fort Harch! Into March. Yes, sir! <laughs> so <laughs> we'll be doing that marching with you 
We'll be right alongside you. And you know who we are, right? We're the Batlam Bros. We are the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast. And we promise to make war. Come on.